This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. I met Mark Steele in January 2002 when his book Reasons to be Cheerful was first published. There was a Labour government in those days. The subtitle of the book is From Punk to New Labour Through the Eyes of a Dedicated Troublemaker. So I put it to him that actually being a troublemaker is something, a path he'd adopted quite early on. I did, but as I say, the book, it was, um, it started out, as I suppose in many ways, it carried on as a pretty failed attempt to be a, a troublemaker in lots of ways. Um, and especially when you're about 15 in the 1970s, you're angry, but you don't know quite why you're angry. And I would sort of, I was never quite sure whether I was angry about the Vietnam War or because I fancied Cheryl Jackson and she was going out with a bloke from Caxton House. So it was um, the combination of the two things and then all the stability of the 70s as well, you know, the sort of things that people rebelled against uh, up to that point, the stability. Why is it? Is this the best that we can hope for, you know? crockery in the bookcase you know a nice little picture of a green lady to hang on the wall that sort of life that we were supposed to aspire to and then that's gone and um and as i was saying there you know, i thought uh when i was at school i would sort of miss a day and then the teacher would sit me in a corner and they would do this little rant where they'd say do you know where you're going to end up if you carry on like this driving a van because yes. uh, I think what they do now is they get the kid who's the brightest kid and they sit them in a corner and they say we've got great hopes for you because we really feel that if you carry on producing this very high level of work go to university get a de- good degree with a bit of luck you could end up driving a van yeah. <laughs> but you also say that they dealt with your insubordination if you didn't show up by saying we're just going to throw you out and as you say it's like oh yeah it's, it's like giving a, it's like giving a bank robber 50,000 quid if they don't it was that's right it was tremendous it was me and a mate and we both skipped off we'd skipped off to go on a cricket course strange enough but um we i used to skip off quite a lot and then yeah it was marvelous dr henry the headmaster and he called us in that you are now going to suffer such a punishment and i thought what's it going to be you're never allowed to come in again. Your punishment for not coming in is not to be allowed to come in. And we both got outside and went, yes, and it was brilliant, you know. I still don't really regret that. I mean, I regret a little bit that I didn't go to university or anything like that in some ways. But I, mean, I always used to think at the time when people said, oh, you can stay on, you can stay on and go to the sixth form. That's what you ought to do. And to me, it was, always, it was almost like going up to someone who was, had a month left in jail and saying, well, why don't you stay on and do another couple of years? It was just sort of, it was such a brilliant moment for me to be released from that. And um, I think that was probably part of all that sort of, it takes years, really. I mean, look at the history of anybody. I mean, people who are far, far greater names in rebellion than I could ever be. But I mean, everyone from sort of Che Guevara to Marx or anybody like that, you know, Rousseau, anybody like that. It takes years and years of these people sort of fiddling about, wondering what it is they're angry about before you finally come to... Um, to some sort of yeah, one of the, one of the facts co- that incoherent analysis. <laughs> that one of the facts that, that, that resonates and bounces back and forth through my brain is that Fidel Castro was only twenty nine when he took over Cuba. You know. Yeah. Well, Shay was only thirty nine when he got shot yeah. in Bolivia. And I, I mean, as I was saying there, you realise, you know, because I'm forty now, and you realise, I realised I'm never going to be in his league because there's a. There's a, at the moment I realised this was at the same age, at 39, there's a record that I love by a band called Rage Against the Machine that, to, to paraphrase, goes, um, screw them, don't do what they tell you, right? And I, I was cheering along, screw them, don't do what they tell you. And then I realised I was doing this while I was hoovering. <laughs> and uh, I thought, that doesn't, don't do what they tell you. I've missed a bit beyond the city. <laughs> yeah. It's not quite got the same oomph, is it? So I yeah. thought, no, don't pretend you're a young Shay.
Yeah, but, but you did start with the banana incident. Well, my, yeah, so this, I think this was sort of one of the things that, looking back on it, sort of had quite an impact on me. And it was the first time I realised that authority doesn't really like rebellion in a way, because I was walking through the, the school yard um, or, I cut, and I was eating a banana and I carried on eating it as I went through the building and out the other side. And Dr Henry, the headmaster, came up and said, why are you eating a banana? And I said, well, you know, it seems like a bizarre question. And I thought, well, I said, oh, it's a banana. I just fancied eating it. You're not allowed to eat inside the school premises. And it was one of the times you sort of realised, no, you, the authority is wrong. You are wrong here. Because you're brought up with such, a, uh, such an atmosphere of, no, it's you that's wrong all the time. Do as you're told. And I was then summoned that later that afternoon for an hour-long lecture from Dr Henry about the need, nothing to do with the banana, the need to stick to the rules. And when I was expelled, uh, he said to me, last thing he said to me before I left the school was he said, I knew you were, this is three years later, he said, I knew you were going to be trouble from the moment that you wouldn't have it, that you weren't supposed to eat that banana. Isn't that such a wonderful compliment though? Yeah, yeah, I like it, yeah. You could only put yeah. on a t-shirt, couldn't you? I mean, were you drawn to institutionalised rebellion? I mean, did you think there was a political party that could somehow resonate with what was in your soul? I think the problem, and this is the problem really for anyone of my age that sort of got into being an anti-authority figure um, in the 70s, was that the socialism, communism, I mean, it seemed such a sort of, it seemed such an exciting thing. I remember seeing the Morning Star, and I couldn't believe it. It said on the top, the paper of the Communist Party. And I couldn't believe it, because communism to me was just an insult that people threw at each other. You know, you remember in the 70s, the idea of working class organisation was much sort of more dominant idea than the idea you have now. I mean, you know, Mike Yarwood used to do Vic Feather, the general secretary of the TUC, was one of his Saturday night BBC One impressions that everybody knew Vic Feather was. You know, the unions, everybody talked about unions and union leaders and so on. But everybody attacked the communists. Harold Wilson, Ted Heath, everybody attacked the communists. If anyone was accused of being a communist, you say, no, 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 I'm not a communist. And so um, to see a paper, the paper of the Communist Party, I thought, this is extraordinary. These people, not only do they not deny it, they boast about it. It was like um, some horrible insult being thrown at you. Someone saying, yes, yes, I'm proud to be that. And I got this. And I remember I skipped off school for the afternoon and I sat down. The local swimming pool used to go and sit in the spectators' gallery. And I was, um, as I say in the book, I must have looked like a distance, from a distance, like someone with a pawn mag, a 15-year-old with a pawn mag, going, and in a sense I was going, whoa, look at that greeting to the tool room workers at British Leyland. <laughs> it was like that. But there was a problem, which was Russia. It didn't seem right to me that Russia could be socialist. This wasn't right at all. And um, also when you're 15 and 16 and then punk's just starting and you're looking for an icon to follow, Leonid Brezhnev wasn't quite going to fit the bill, really. Um, and then eventually I came across the, a copy of Socialist Worker and it just said, Russia is state capitalist. And I thought, yes, that's it, that's it, that's the answer. And um, I think for a great many people of that generation, it, did, it suddenly made sense. You could be a socialist, but not support Russia. I love your analysis of the music business there. Um, you talk about your parents' generation collecting Mantovani records, sort of lift music, and playing them these opulent stereos, and then telling you that you have to listen to the Sex Pistols 
Why? <laughs> Drive was brilliant. You'd have the well, the Clash was the album that really changed my life in a sense. You know, I thought, God, you know, it made anger legitimate. Put it on the first track on the Clash album, Janie Jones, and just think, fantastic. But yes, that's exactly right. They'd have, I mean, Dad had a box set of James' last records. And I thought, it's so unfair. I save up every penny I can to buy my record, and you just casually buy ten in a, a row on a box set thing and then play this rubbish and he'd knock on the door and it was so ridiculous, you know, turn it down, rubbish, can't even hear the words and all that sort of thing. And um, it doesn't really translate when it's quiet. Because you can you can listen to Mantovani at any volume, but um, when the Sex Pistols, when Johnny Rotten's going, one, two, three, four, I am an antichrist, I am an anarchist, <laughs> it doesn't quite carry the sort of momentum that it's supposed to, does it? No. How about... Um, when, when you when you go into that left wing politics, it, it has this desire to organise itself, doesn't it? I mean, it's very it's very tough on rules. You know, as you say, you sit around in a pub, five blokes in a pub, round the table, and then it's oh, it's time to start. So you move to another room, and the same five blokes sit round a table, and they, they they pass motions, and then they walk back again. And they walk back again and yeah. then chat to the, at the original table. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's marvellous like that. I mean, it, well, the sort of left-wing organisation generally is is, um, is is so hard. That's why it always makes me laugh when you get these, uh, after a big demonstration and you get someone comes on television and says, there was an organised force from outside the area. I'd always think, really, I'm organised. I wish that the other side was as organised as we were, because then you'd get... Um, then you'd get all the coppers going, oh, no, the sergeants locked the truncheons in the panda. <laughs> it's always a mess, chaos, chaos. But somehow it sort of bumbles through. I mean, certainly the first organised group uh, or campaign that I was part of was the Anti-Nazi League in the 70s. And, I mean, that was classically disorganised because the idea was to stop the National Front marches from happening. And there would sometimes be 20,000, 30,000 people would get turn up there to, to try and stop this from happening. And it was utter because nobody knew where anybody was supposed to be going. And then someone would say, they're over here! And everyone would just follow them for no apparent reason. And then the, the leading group would say, through here! And you'd go through Woolworths, I remember, at one point. <laughs> and all these sort of little old, like, where are you going? You can't take the sweets, you know, without paying. And through the other side, and there were all these... Pla and it'd be absolute chaos. And then at the end, nobody knew what had happened. Everybody would be waiting for buses that weren't there. And it was just... And then a, a fortnight later, everyone would be telling these incredible stories about how they sort of rode a... Uh, there was one about getting a milk float and blocking the NF march with a milk float. So, and I thought, none of this happened. You've made it all up. My experience was just that you'd sort of turn up, like someone would ask where you were, you wouldn't know, then I'd buy a pasty and a tin of lemonade and then go home. <laughs> but, but somehow, you know, the other... And I think, in a sense, is really what the book's about. It is chaotic, it is rubbish, in a sense, and it is a mess. But through all of that, you know, the Anti-Nazi League did, I think, I think, or, you know, almost certainly, um, prevent the rise of fascism in the late 70s. The fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people who wore the badges, who uh, went on the demonstrations, who tore stickers, NF stickers off wherever they went, that did have an enormous impact. So there's no question about that. So it was worth it, despite all the Didn't chaos. Didn't Mrs Thatcher say it was her that did it? Yeah, that would be depressing, though, wouldn't it? If the only <laughs> way to stop... stop the growth of far-right groups was for a, a bourgeois politician or whatever to say, no, I'm going to stop all the immigrants. That's depressing. I mean, if it happened again, then what, we'd have to get Thatcher to come back again and promise it again? You know, Best of course not. it... No. Of course it had an impact, you know, of course it had a huge impact when... Um, 
No, if you just put your mind in the sort of put yourself in the mind of someone who was maybe disillusioned, seventeen-year-old in nineteen seventy-eight, disillusioned because the stability that they'd been brought up with had collapsed, and you're attracted to blaming the blacks or the Asians or what have you, and then all your mates are wearing badges, and you everywhere you go, there's people with sort of anti-Nazi League stickers, and there's bands making anti-Nazi League pronouncements, and so on. Of course, it has an enormous impact. So, you must be so happy that now you live in a country with with a new Labour government mm. headed Delirious. by... I mean, you must have pictures of Mr Blair all over <laughs> your all over your house, smiling at you. Yeah. No, yeah. no, no, look at, that, look at that expression that went over your face, yeah, smiling at you. That's right, he does. Well, he smiles, he's a smiler himself, isn't he? Um, the, well, the, the extraordinary <laughs> well, thing... The extraordinary thing is that he's sort of... Uh, he, he's sort of more or less copied Thatcher's agenda. Not exactly, but he's more or less copied the, the agenda. And I think the most important thing about him, you know, he's, he's described, he's still, again now, in, uh, described as the most popular Prime Minister for 100 years. And um, what I always say when somebody says that to me is quite simply, all right then, who do you know who likes him? You can't think of... It's hard to think of anybody who genuinely likes him. He must be the most unpopular, most popular person there's ever been, as far as I can see. I think he's a bit like the, the irritating person you get at a party who nobody throws him out because they think he's everybody else's friend. Uh, he's not particularly popular. I think that the reason that he um, appears to be popular according to voting patterns is simply that there are millions of people who think, I would like something much more radical, but I don't believe it's possible, and therefore Tony Blair... He gets my cross as the best of the best of what there is. Mark Steele talking to me when his book Reasons to be Cheerful, From Punk to New Labour Through the Eyes of a Dedicated Troublemaker. And when that book was published in January two thousand and two, there was a Labour government. This is the author archive.